Artemis endeavors to get more women and girls in the field and on the water. To support women as leaders in the conservation movement. To ensure the vitality of our lands, waters, and wildlife. Artemis endeavors to change the face of conservation. Welcome to the Artemis Podcast. I'm your host, Ashley Chance, and my co-host today is Marsha Brownlee. Hello, Marsha. Hello, Ashley. How are you? Um, hot. Hot, yes. <laughs> I think probably everyone can empathize with that. <laughs> I was in, so I don't have air conditioning at my house, and I went to the post office today, and it was like a long trip where I'm standing there at the counter for 10 minutes, and I swear to God I was going to fall asleep because it just felt so nice and cool in there. Oh, my gosh. But, okay. Uh, you don't have air conditioning in your house, full stop. Um, for the next five days, because I caved last night and bought a window air conditioner. But for the oh next, but no, I've never, I've never lived in a place with air conditioner, and that's so, been a conscious choice. And so I've compromised my beliefs in order to. I okay. I need to introduce our guests, but I have so much to say about this because okay. I also despise air conditioning, but live in a place where now I feel like I need it. It reminds me of when I was in undergrad, we would go move into the dorms in late, like in September and there's no air conditioning in them. Mm-hmm. And so it was like hot for a little bit, but anyway, sorry, tangent. Okay. Our guest today is Jill Kilborn. Jill, how are you doing? I'm doing excellent. Also hot? Uh, yeah, it's, it's warm <laughs> for sure. <laughs> Jill, where are you located? So I live in Northeastern Vermont. Oh, you're up there. Yeah. Yeah. So up by the Canadian border. Yeah. Nice. I love that area of the country. I've always wanted to visit the Northeast for the scenery and the food and have not yet been able to. So the food? What are you like? Clam chowder, lobster. Okay, Okay. fair enough. You want a lobster roll? (laughs) I'm with you now. I want to visit everywhere for the food, so I don't know. Maybe the food's not that great, but... <laughs> no, lobster rolls are totally worth it. Yeah. They are. They really are. Yeah, That sounds worth it. I had a one of my lab mates in grad school was like the king of fun facts. And one time, and he's from the Finger Lakes region of New York. And one time he told me that, uh, I don't know how he knew this, but prisoners long ago complained that they were getting, um, what's the phrase? Strange and inhumane. I don't know. It's not coming to me. They thought it was was inhumane that they were having to eat lobster for every meal. And they wrote a letter about that to somebody. And I thought that was so crazy because who wouldn't want to eat lobster all the time? (laughs) (laughs) Okay. I'm tangenting a lot. Let's get rolling. Jill, can you tell us about what's in your freezer? Sure. Um, so I've got a little bit of white-tailed deer left. Um, we have some turkey in our freezer. Um, mm-hmm. Then we usually have some grass-fed beef as well as some chickens that we raise on our own. Um, and a variety of usually bird parts that I tend to use for helping to train my bird dog. Mm, okay. Let's hear more about the bird parts for sure. <laughs> I'm curious, first of all, where do you acquire such bird parts? Um, so I usually save some of the wings off the woodcock and the grouse that we get okay. um, and use those as just to help with training because I've got a young bird dog. So kind of getting her used to having feathers in her mouth. Those are pretty mm-hmm. handy to have around in the freezer. Um, and then no. I also have, oh, go ahead. <laughs> no, please finish your thought. Well, I was just going to say, I also have a woodcock head, <laughs> but that's more because my, my son was really interested in trying to, um, you know, put it in some beetles or something so that we could have a woodcock skull because their oh, heads so are so cool. cool. Yeah. Yeah. Love it. Um, what kind of dog do you have? Um, I have an interesting mix. I have a black lab griffon or griffin cross. Um, so she's a little confused. Half pointer, half flushing dog. So, so, okay. So uh, I have some questions. Um, like my understanding of, of hunting dogs is, is limited. Um, uh, but I believe that some are ground sniffers and some are air sniffers. Is that right? Uh, yeah, I guess you could put them in those categories depending on what you're going after. Yeah. 
But for the most part, bird dogs are ground sniffers. The bad ones are air sniffers, Marsha. Yeah. (laughs) The what? What did you say? The bad bad ones are air sniffers. Okay. Because I think my dog is an air sniffer because she can find me from a mile away, but she can't find a piece of cheese. (laughs) (laughs) She's not a ground sniffer. Um, Okay. Okay. Then I don't know if my question, like, how do you train an air sniffer to find things? Uh, yeah, I don't know. Helicopter. <laughs> okay. <laughs> That's yeah. all I got. <laughs> well, <laughs> Jillian, <laughs> I'm interested in how you acquired such a dog. How does one a dog like that come into being, and how did you get it? Sure. Yeah. So, um, I had a lab prior to this dog, and I really like labs because um, they're pretty versatile, as you both know, uh, when it comes to hunting. You can use them waterfowl, you can use them in upland birds. Um, so I was kind of, we had recently lost our, our first lab, and um, I was just talking to a friend um, at one of my check stations who happens to have a bunch of dogs. He's a, a bear hunter and an upland bird hunter. Um, and it just happened that he had a Griffon female and I was telling him that I was looking, going to be in the market for a new bird dog. And he's like, well, I'm thinking about crossing my, my Griffon with a, with a lab because I can't find another Griffon. And I was like, hmm, that might be an interesting mix. So he ended up doing it that, that winter and had a, a litter of something like, I think he had maybe 12 puppies. Um, and yeah, he was awesome about it. He wanted to just give me the dog and I insisted on giving him some money for it because as you know like bird dogs are not cheap but um she's turned out to be just an amazing hunter she's got a great nose and a lot of drive and just been a really cool dog that's so cool that is really cool I I remember the first time I saw Griffon I was working at a uh basically a game farm where they would set birds for hunt I would set birds for hunts and somebody brought a Griffon and I was like what is that dog? It was <laughs> yeah. so beautiful and had, you know, like a beard or I don't know what it's probably, there's probably yeah. a name for it. Yeah, no. And that's, she looks exactly like a black lab, only she's got the longer fur with the big furry beard and these long <laughs> eyelashes and eyebrows that kind of stick it. out the top of her head. She's super cute. Oh, that's awesome. I love, yeah, they always remind me of that, like um, big, bigger versions of the labyrinth dog. I just love them when they're all wiry and scraggly and I don't know. They just look like they've got a lot of character. Do you guys remember the dragon from the never ending story? Yes. yes. That's <laughs> so, exactly it. Yeah. <laughs> all the same feelings. Yep. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> well, that's love funny. It. All right, Joe, we've got, gotten... is she a black dog? Sorry. <laughs> yeah, she is. Yeah. She's black. <laughs> We've gotten a little bit of a window into how you spend your time and your freezer space. Uh, Can you tell us a little bit more about who you are? Sure. So um, I am a mother of two uh, amazing kids. I've got a 12-year-old boy, Jack, and a nine-year-old daughter, Elsie. Um, And I am professionally, I'm a wildlife biologist in the state of New Hampshire. So I work for the state agency Um, managing a variety of our wildlife management areas. So doing a lot of habitat management, um, doing public access type work. Um, I also spend a lot of time thinking and working with a lot of our um, non-game and endangered species that we have here in New Hampshire, specifically the ones that are kind of at the interface between um, more of our boreal habitats, so uh, softwood and deep snow type species, and the ones that are kind of on the northern edge of their range, because I'm right at that interface um, where I live here in the state. And I'm also um, really involved in the outdoors. I love recreating in the outdoors, so I spend a lot of time canoe camping and hunting and fishing and outside with my family. Wow. That's, we've, we've been talking to a lot of biologists lately and I've, I don't know, I feel like it's really wonderful to hear about your passions, you know, cause it is, it is your work, but, um, I don't know. I like hearing what everybody cares so much about. And I think you're the first one in a while that, uh, focuses a little bit on non-game species. Can you tell us what some of the stars of that show are, where you're from? (laughs) Sure. Yeah. So I've spent a good chunk of my career working with American Martin or Pine Martin. So Mm, they're my uh, favorite. 
Yeah, so they're they're such a cool animal. Um, for people that don't know, they're a small weasel, um, highly related to Fisher and mink. They're kind of in between the those two species. And um, here in New Hampshire, they were long listed as a threatened species. Um, while they're doing fine in some of the other uh, regional states here, we always found that the population here in New Hampshire just kind of never really recovered at the turn of the 19th century from a variety of reasons, from over-trapping to uh, habitat kind of issues. And then, um, Back when I first started working for the department in the 2000s, uh, I kind of started poking around with them and working with them and trying to figure out where we had them. So really I've spent a good of my chunk of my career working with that species, which has been really cool. Um, more recently, I've kind of dabbled in um, lynx research because here in the Northeast, lynx have made a pretty significant uh, recovery. And so the core of that population really resides in Maine. Um, but over the last 15 years or so here in New Hampshire, we've actually seen uh, more and more lynx uh, kind of come back to our landscape, which has been really cool to watch. That's super cool. Do you get to participate in captures? Yeah, so I've done quite a bit of capture with Martin um, with the different projects that we've had over the years. We've done a bunch of telemetry work with them, but unfortunately I've yet to get in on a Lynx project, but it's on the top of my list. <laughs> As it would be for me too. Yeah. Uh, I want to get back to Marsha's question, but first, can you talk us through how and what it's like to catch a Martin? I've, I've caught a lot of animals, but never a carnivore. Yeah, yeah. So we're using box traps or live traps um, for them. And you're simply just placing them out on the landscape and the places where you think a weasel would like to crawl into. So a lot of crevices and along old logs and things like that on the woods. Um, and there's this really cool device that we actually got from a researcher up in Newfoundland. Um, I think he was the one that actually designed it where it's like a sock that you put over the end of the trap after you catch the animal in the box trap. And the sock has a bunch of long wires on the end of it um, with a circle on the end. So weasels naturally like to crawl into confined spe spaces because they're always looking for small mammals and things like that to eat. So when you attach this bag to the end of the trap and open up the door, the, the marten instinctively wants to climb into that, that bag and that darker space and it goes into the, the kind of wires and you squeeze the back of it and it squeezes the wires around the weasel and restrains them in the bag, which is really kind of crazy. And then you can just pull the hind leg out through one of the holes in the wires to actually immobilize them um, through their hind leg. I'm envisioning like a frosting piping bag. Yeah, <laughs> but, yeah, yes. With a weasel in it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Marsha, what was your question? Uh, it, it doesn't deserve air. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay. So the other thing I was wondering is by body weight, mustelids, which is mustelidae is the family that um, pine martin are a part of and weasels in general, are they're intense fighters, like crazy aggressive animals. So that's what I was really interested in when you're handling them. How do you navigate that? Or maybe yeah. the sock just makes it kind of a non-issue? Yeah, yeah. So I call them furry vipers because <laughs> um, <laughs> I've actually been bit by one when I was trying to release it out of the trap. You know, I would hold the trap door open and it came around and muckled right onto my thumb um, and had to go through the post rabies treatment because of that one. But um, yeah, the, the bag itself, once they climb into it, they're completely restrained. So they can't they can't move. And once they're in that situation, they they tend to be pretty calm. Yeah. It's so, it's making me think of um, a while back, we did a podcast with uh, some python hunters out of Florida, and they were talking about these, yeah, like these homemade contraptions that they make in order to subdue these animals to m make them easier to handle. And it's, I love that kind of ingenuity. And, and, and it's so interesting to think about individual animal species, and they're just so like it, I don't know what I'm even trying to say, but I just think it's so interesting to get to know a species so well that you know how to immobilize 
<laughs> beyond just like strapping them down with your with everything you can right like if a python can't see if you've got a bag over his head then he's he he doesn't struggle as much and i think it's that same interesting knowledge of like they're designed to go into these little holes with the martin so if you've got a contraption that just appeals to that um instinct kind yeah it's fascinating to me yeah totally yep Somebody much smarter than me figured it out, and I, it just works really slick. <laughs> yeah, very cool. So, Jill, you are also an Artemis ambassador. I know building community is really important to you, um, even before, you know, in your life, even before you became a part of Artemis. Um, but can you tell us what it means to you to be part of a community of sportswomen? Yeah. Um, so I was... I thought a little bit about this question just because um, I've been kind of following Artemis for a couple of years now, and I just, there's a lot of the content that has really resonated with me. Um, and specifically because I've done quite a bit of instruction with women in the outdoors through my work. Um, I've been an active participant in our Becoming an Outdoors Woman program. And the thing that I really liked about Artemis and the community that was being built with Artemis. It was it's women that um, are experienced in the outdoors and um, have perspective in the outdoors. And I, I just realized that in my life I didn't have a lot of other women that were in that place. Like I was very focused on um, helping women and bringing them into the space, but didn't have a big community that were there and established to share experiences with. Um, and so that opportunity, I really um, cherished the thought of having a community to build out in that way. So um, I'm really excited about that opportunity. Um, and the other thing I really like about this community and this approach is it's not just about hunting. Um, there's so much more to talk about and um, all the different pieces that you guys have brought in with leadership and all the other discussions and podcasts and kind of series that you have done, I think have been done really well. And I like that it's more than just about that hunting community. Thank you. And Ashley, thank you for asking this question because it just really makes me feel really good. <laughs> well, it should. <laughs> I've, yeah, Jill, thank you for all of the kind words. And I feel like, you know, more and more, I, I also didn't have, well, I didn't have this community before I joined it, obviously, but I didn't have other women in my life that were kind of like you said, that had their footing in the outdoors already and were confident. And, you know, not every member of the Artemis community is an expert. Um, and, and that's, okay and by design. Um, but there's a large component of us that really are very independent in the field and on the water. And even though I considered myself that way already, it's every day still so inspiring to me to see that in our community. And I feel privileged to be able to be a part of elevating those images and voices and that whole perspective for sure. Yeah, definitely. It's, it's, it's one of the things that I experienced early on when in, when I started with Artemis um, was a turkey camp in Idaho, and it was kind of the first of that type of hunting camp that Artemis hosted, um, and it was in collaboration with Becca Acido, who was an ambassador at the time, and she pulled together this incredible group of women. It was probably like 12 or 13 women, and it was women, you know, all of whom had hunting experience they were all pretty experienced in the field particularly in big game hunting some had been hunting for decades and some had been hunting for five years but they all had solid hunting experience and turkey was a new species for some of them which was cool because you know they've they've got field experience but not with this particular species um, but absolutely none of them out of all of those 15 experienced hunters none of them have had ever hunted with another woman before yeah. and that to me was just such an eye-opener um about what artemis could really do and just creating a space where women can hunt with other women and and i and i have found that valuable myself and it's just incredible to me because we're out there and we're doing it and and we don't know each other <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, I have to admit, so my, my husband's going on a, a hunting trip this fall um, out to Colorado, and he's going with his, his brother uh, and a few other guys that he knows. And just to be able to have that community, to be able to plan a trip like that and, and go someplace and experience something like that would just be really awesome. So, right. um, yeah. Uh-huh. Well, along those lines, um, there's, uh, there are hunts being planned for ambassadors in both Wyoming and Montana. So <laughs> if you want to join us on either of those, that would be amazing. I'm in. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I can definitely, I feel like when I was in graduate school, I think I've talked about this before on the podcast, but my husband, we weren't married at the time. Um, he was really the one who got me into waterfall hunting. I had done a little bit of it previous to meeting him, but he was like head over heels for it. And so I was like, okay, this is fun. (laughs) Um, and inevitably it came to a point where he wanted to go hunting with his friends and not necessarily that he didn't want me there, but they weren't mutual friends. So it was like, he felt weird adding me as a tag on, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Um, which I understand now, but at the time just made me so mad. And I remember going around to the other people that we hunted with, which were both of our friends. Um, and you know, they're most primarily grad students and just being like, okay, let's, let's plan a hunt, you know, like whatever Don's going to be gone this weekend, but we can go (laughs) go hunting without him. And they were like, "Uh." (laughs) and it wasn't the feeling of, you know, that they didn't want to hunt with me or anything like that, but they were like, well, this is weird now because you guys are having like a relationship thing. And you know, (laughs) it was just like too sticky and I get it. Um, but it was so frustrating because, like you said, Jill, I wanted to be able to just call up my people and be like, yeah, let's plan this trip. But I was always an add-on unless I went out by myself, which for duck hunting can be done, but it's kind of tough. Yeah. So yep. something special for sure. And there's something so, about hunting in a, with, with somebody else in the field. Like I just push myself further. I push myself harder um, mm. when there's somebody else with me. I mean, enjoy hunting alone. Don't get me wrong. But I find that I push myself further when I'm in the field with somebody. And it's so nice to just have that challenge and support. Yeah, absolutely. So Jill, have you, uh, have you been hunting with like just another woman? Um, I can't remember the last time I've been out with another experienced woman hunter. Um, I tried a little bit of uh, mentoring and took somebody out a couple falls ago um, but it's been a very long time since I've been out with another experienced hunter, <laughs> woman hunter. Mm-hmm. Yep. Well, maybe this fall you can make it happen. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah. I think that's but a must. Another thing that I've found in, um, a lot of conversation with other experienced women hunters is that the, the definition of true hunting or success, which is a word that, you know, we throw around a lot really differ from what it might sound like in a lot of male circles, not all of them, not all the time, but, um, that's, there's a little bit more nuance there. Um, and certainly from what we see in popular culture. So can you talk Jill a little bit about your perspective on those things? Yeah, no, it's, it's been an interesting, um, kind of progression for me through that because, uh, in a career like wildlife biology, I'm surrounded uh, by a lot of males that uh, participate in hunting or are very driven in hunting. And I've, I've always felt like um, hunting has uh, taken on a little bit of a different angle for me. Uh, I really enjoy upland bird hunting and I've kind of tried to sit down and tease apart what is, exactly it is about upland hunting that I enjoy so much. And it, it comes down to I really like hunting with other people and I like the interaction with a dog and I like being active when I'm hunting. Um, And so those are all things that have drawn me to upland hunting. And when I think about some of the other animals that you pursue, whether it be white-tailed deer or, you know, bear hunting or moose hunting, um, a lot of them are very independent or require a lot being more stationed and quiet, (laughs) um, which I'm not awesome at doing. So, um, yeah, I feel like hunting has taken on a a very social kind of uh, bend for me. And I 
taught hunter safety for many years and in the hunter safety manual they talk about like the different stages that you go through as a hunter and you know when you first get introduced you try and get really good at shooting and then you kind of go through the stage where you want to limit out and then you want to get the biggest animal possible and then finally you kind of get to this sportsman stage I guess they call it where you just enjoy the experience and I kind of feel like I skipped all those steps in the middle yeah yeah that's interesting Um, yeah so I uh it took me a long time to come to terms with that, I think, because I had these expectations in my head of what it meant to be a good hunter or to be a hunter. And I didn't really fall into those categories with all the people that I was surrounded by and, and how they perceived hunting. And I finally just got to the point where I was like, no, you know what? Just like hunting for the reason why you like hunting and do it for the reason I like doing it. I don't have to have any expectation around it. So that's kind of where I've ended up. <laughs> Yeah, beautifully said. Yeah. I just, that, I hadn't heard that. I mean, I had heard that progression before, especially towards like the end where, um, you know, I've heard a lot of hunters who, men, hunters who've been hunting for most of their life, like they get more joy in teaching somebody how to hunt than they necessarily Mm -hmm. do in their own hunts anymore. And so I've kind of heard that progression, but I agree those don't resonate for me um, in the journey that I've experienced. And Ashley, this makes me think of that conversation we've had before about hunter identity. And in the R3 community, there's a lot of talk about identifying as a hunter. And in my experience with Artemis, that path is a lot different for women. Uh, And we don't really know what that path is for them yet because we haven't explored it. Um, The the information that's out there is, um, is defined by that journey of men because that's the majority of hunters. And it's interesting to consider how it differs and the kind of research that we need to do to parse out uh, that difference. Yeah, and I've always thought that it's really important to key key in on how people connect to the activity and not necessarily force them into whatever expectation there Mm -hmm. is. So, Mm -hmm. you know, it, it does, you're no less of a hunter if you enjoy the social aspect of hunting like yeah. you don't have to be put in one category or the other it's it's just yeah. why you're there and why you enjoy it yeah yep and it's crazy for me that that's um like rebellious yeah <laughs> <laughs> you know it's like you had, to, you had to break free of your con- confines in order to come to that acceptance yeah and I, did, I had to do the same thing hunting looks different to me and, yeah. and I think it does for a lot of women. So I, yep. I think, yeah. I agree. I mean, the trajectory of the the hunter's journey, that uh, it's different for me too um, than what you laid out explicitly. And But similar to that in some ways, I feel like my perspective has really been shifted by having my daughter. Um, mm. And also, I mean, the periphery of our lifestyle where we really, my husband and I are just doing it ourselves. We don't have anybody to help care for her. So if I go hunting, she goes hunting. <laughs> yeah. And that um, that changes a lot of things, and I'm mostly fine with it. Sometimes, I mean, I went out and looked at a – I was out in the woods yesterday um, walking around looking at for deer-related stuff for deer season, and I kept looking up in the trees, and I was like, man, this would be perfect. You could get right up above this trail and just, you know – right below you would be a deer and it would be, it would be great. And, but of course I can't hunt from a tree right now. And, mm. um, that's okay. But that, it, it crossed my mind the other day, kind of like, uh, but for, for me now, I mean, we've got food in the freezer. We're fortunate enough to have, you know, enough money to go to the grocery store if we need to. So the priority now is just getting outside and not getting covered in ticks, I guess. <laughs> Ashley, I love the fact that you're you're taking Charlie with you um, when you go out because I I don't know why it didn't dawn on me when my kids were younger. Um, I mean, I would take them out once in a while for short little kind of stints to to spur their interest and kind of keep them engaged, but it never really dawned on me to like actually take them on a full fledged hunt. So I think it's great. I think it's awesome that you're doing that with Charlie. 
I appreciate that. I mean, I understand why you didn't. It comes with challenges. There's no doubt. (laughs) I mean, anyone who's ever tried to walk with a toddler for 30 yards understands. (laughs) There's a lot of obstacles or I should say distractions um, that come in the way. But yeah, I mean, my husband and I both, a central value of ours is certainly the outdoors and engaging Charlie in it is a big deal for us. And (laughs) I need to shift, but I just thought of this and I wanted to share it on the podcast. Uh, A couple of weeks ago, we were walking around our neighborhood and there's some blackberry bushes and Charlie loves fruit of any kind. So we picked off some berries and gave them to her and that was fun. And then a couple of weeks after that, we were walking and actually she was in her stroller and we got to that same location and she started, we, we teach her signs. She can't talk yet. And she started signing to eat and we were like oh my gosh and of course you know the berries are all dried up they're not there anymore so we had to tell her that which was sad but we were both just kind of in shock because I think a lot of times we don't realize the impact I don't know we don't realize her awareness fully we can't comprehend it and it was facial awareness right like yeah exactly so that was really eye-opening and I put a little green check mark in the win column (laughs) when that happened. Totally. Yeah, that's awesome. But um, yeah. Okay. So I think this is a this is a good spot to stop and hear from our partners. Howdy, Artemis listeners. This is Aaron Kindle from NWF Outdoors. We know you love awesome conservation conversations. That's why we want to invite you to check out the NWF Outdoors podcast where we dive deep into the issues, people, and places that showcase the best of the sporting conservation lifestyle. Guests include leaders, luminaries, and decision makers who define conservation and work tirelessly for fish and wildlife. Check it out wherever you get your podcasts or at nwfoutdoors.org. And we're back. So kind of on the vein we were discussing earlier, Jill, I wonder if you can talk a little bit about navigating some of your other roles, you know, as, as wife and mother, um, along with Hunter. Sure. Yeah. Um, so I think I'm going to start with, uh, I've recently just started to get my kids into hunting for themselves. So my son during the pandemic was actually able to take the hunter safety course, which, you know, I give a huge shout out to Vermont Fish and Wildlife because as soon as the pandemic hit, um, they put everything in place and actually had the hunter safety course all set up online um, completely so that people could get totally through the course and get outside um, in the field hunting and fishing um, through the pandemic, which was really cool. Um, so he was nine at the time and took hunter safety and um, it was a really cool process to go through that with him because as a, a former instructor, you know, before I had kids and walking him through that process, it was just a, a lot of fun to take him through that. Um, and so then he was all jazzed up, ready to go. He wanted to get out hunting in the field and and it's been interesting Um for me and my husband trying to navigate uh, once we had kids because we were both pretty active hunters and liked getting out. And we did quite a bit of hunting together, but what I found is after we had kids, we actually had to split in our time in the field um, so that we always had coverage for the kids. So um, my husband really likes deer hunting and spends a lot of time tracking. And for anybody that does any time tracking, you know, it's like a huge time commitment. It's not like you just go out for a couple hours and, and sit in your stand and wait for something to come out. You're getting on a track first thing in the morning and using every possible minute of that day to try and catch up with that animal. So it's it's really a time commitment. So I give him that time to, to hunt white-tailed deer, and then in return, he would always give me some time to go upland bird hunting. Um, so that worked out really well. Um, but I also tended to be the one that had a little bit more experience with some of the other species. So I had dabbled in turkey hunting prior to having kids, and Jackson, my son, was really excited to try turkey hunting. So I went on this absolutely amazing journey over the past three years um, with Jackson 
showing him how to turkey hunt and making a whole lot of mistakes along the way myself because I, I wasn't super experienced and we just learned so much together. It was, it was amazing. Um, so I just wanted to throw that out there because um, I think if you have an opportunity to do this with your child, totally take advantage of it and don't let it just be one partner or the other. Because having that experience with my son, I wouldn't give up for anything in the world. And it's been just a, such a fun ride to watch him get excited and learn all the lessons that we've learned together and go through that process together. Um, so it's just been a really cool experience. Sounds awesome. Yeah, I can hear in your telling of that how much that has meant to you. Can you tell us about a lesson that you learned with Jackson <laughs> about turkeys? <laughs> um, oh. Yeah, so blind placement is huge. <laughs> um, so when you're hunting with kids, as everybody knows, uh, not only are snacks super important, but making sure that you can conceal movement is just as important. Um, and so one of the first mistakes I made was I thought it was just a stellar blind. Um, we were in kind of this peninsula of woods that went out in between two fields where I knew there was a bunch of turkey activity. And we built this field blind out there just out of sticks and wood and stuff that was, was out there. We didn't use any like tent or kind of fabric to cover us up. And we had two chairs sitting in it and it was covering us on two sides. Um, and the first morning we were out there, sure enough, like a turkey flew right down from the roost into the field um, that we were pointed right at. And the turkey was displaying in, a, in front of us for almost an hour and a half at about 80 yards. Um, and I did everything in my might to try and get that bird in closer so that he could get a shot at it but he just like hung up big time um and i couldn't get him to come in any closer and i kept thinking to myself like what what did i do wrong like wh why wouldn't that because the bird obviously knew something was up he was totally hung up would not come in and then the more i got thinking about it the way the bird was looking at us we were totally like our heads had no cover behind it. So whatever movement of our heads happened while we were mm. calling, like that bird was totally picking up on it. So, <laughs> and at one point my son had to pee. So he was like <laughs> kneeling over um, and there was a lot more movement in the blind that there should have been. So I definitely learned my lesson there with that backdrop behind your blind yeah. is very critical. So it's, that's moments. such a cool, and I think like as a new, uh, for me as a new hunter, like that's not necessarily intuitive because that's not necessarily how we see, right? And so we think if the, if the blind is in front, then we're good to go. But that that background blending is so important, and yeah, for me that wasn't intuitive at all. Yeah. Yep. No, I definitely learned my lesson on that one, and mm -hmm. and we moved the blind, and it it definitely helped immensely. So. Um, I'll share one other story because it like, I totally kicked myself for this one too. Um, this past fall, we were actually out deer hunting and I'm not much of a stand hunter. Like I usually, if I'm going to be sitting, I usually sit on the ground and my brother-in-law had it set up a stand in one of the fields that we like to hunt. So my son and I decided, ah, it's a two person stand. We'll climb up and we'll give it a try. So we climbed up and he was sitting on my right and I was on his left. And um, within the first minute, 10 minutes, we were up there, we were chit-chatting and kind of mm -hmm. joking and not really paying attention. And sure enough, um, my son looked up and there was a buck that had come out mm -hmm. into the field to his far right. And I'm thinking to myself, oh no, like this isn't good because when he brings his gun up, he has nothing to rest his gun on to the right. And if I had put myself on his right side, I could have helped steady his gun in that situation. Whereas 
by being on the left side, even if he had swung left, he wouldn't have need, needed me to help steady the gun because he could be more steady with the way he was holding the gun. So I mm -hmm. felt like kind of a, like a rookie move on my part. I was like, why didn't I think of that? I, sh I totally mm -hmm. should have been on the other side of him so that he could have gotten a shot off quicker on that, that deer. And unfortunately, we weren't able to connect on it, but it was definitely a, a lesson learned on that one as well. Yeah, so interesting. That is a Things good you don't consider until you need to consider them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so is recent one of the turkeys in the freezer his? Yes, it is. <laughs> That's exciting. <laughs> yeah, it was an amazing hunt. Um, and there's a whole lot of stories that go with that that turkey as well. But yeah, he was successful this spring, which was awesome. Yay. Have you guys have you eaten any of that turkey yet? We have. So I've tried two different recipes uh, with that turkey. We made a uh, an apple um, sausage. So it was bacon oh, and apple and sage um, with the legs from that turkey, which was awesome. Um, and I still have, I think, three patties from that um, sausage left in the freezer. And then the other recipe that we did was the, I'm not familiar with, Chick-fil-a, I guess it's a thing. Chick-fil-a? Chick yeah. Oh my gosh, I love so, that you just said that. Okay. We don't have them in the Northeast. Um, right, it's a Southern thing. <laughs> um, but I was looking up recipes and then somebody else in my office mentioned that they had tried the recipe for it. And I looked it up and you marinate the turkey breast in pickle juice, mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. which was killer. So we totally did that recipe with one of the turkey breasts and it, the kids loved it. They thought it was awesome. Those both sound really yummy. Uh, what was the, what was that conversation like when, you know, you're getting ready to put food on the table that your son harvested? Yeah, it was pretty exciting because I, I'm pretty sure we paired it with other food. I think it was potatoes that we had grown in our garden and, um, the turkey that we had harvested, and I can't re remember what else it was, but it was like everything that we had eaten in that meal was something that we had grown, you know, um, either at our place or locally. And it was like my kids totally acknowledged it and they knew it. And it was really, it was great. It was, uh, it was really cool. I, love that. I remember even in my own experience, like the first time I made a stir fry with like a deer that I harvested and the zucchini that I grew <laughs> onion that I grew it's like I everything in this is mine except for the soy sauce there was just so much pride and um happiness with that I love it yeah and making that connection with the with the kids and the fact that they acknowledge it too is is just awesome mm -hmm. so Jill you were a becoming an outdoors woman instructor for quite a while right <clears throat> yeah it's been I think about 15 or 16 years that I've been helping out with the course other than the, the pandemic years, of course. So of course. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Okay. That is a really long time. Um, <laughs> can you t tell us what, you know, some of your takeaways are from your involvement in that? Sure. Yeah. Um, it's been a, a really cool experience. So when I got into doing the Martin research in New Hampshire, I actually made some really cool connections within the trapper community. Um, because the first thing I did when I knew I wanted to go out and live trap Martin was reach out to some of the trappers that I knew that I had been to other states where trapping is legal. Um, and so I established this really great relationship with a local trapper um, and then was approached early on to come and teach the course on fur bearers for the Becoming Outdoors Woman program. So we decided to tag team the course together. So um, it's a fellow by the name of Dick LaFleur and I would go down and Dick would bring all of his trapping equipment. And then I would have all the pelts from all the different fur bearers mm -hmm. that we have in the Northeast. And we would just bounce off each other in the course. He would talk about like biology behind the species and, and how you would catch it and all of his experiences. And I would talk more about the biology and, and how we work with trappers and how important their knowledge is and understanding the populations and how we use the data that we collect from the trappers for management decisions. So we would 
teach this course and it was always really cool for me at the end of the course to get the feedback from the women that would participate that they would all say that this was the last course I wanted to take because trapping was part of it and there seemed to be like this negative connotation towards trapping and they said they would get through the course and they would just say thank you because they just didn't understand all the pieces to it and they had never actually seen the traps and never really understood um, the science behind all of it. And that's always just really resonated with me in teaching that class because I feel like it's made a difference. And I know these women aren't gonna go out and trap the next year. Some of them might, but most of them will never see a trap again in their lives. But at least they've been exposed to that conversation and they know what it's all about and they know it's not all bad. Um, So it's been one of the best experiences I think I've had in that process. And I really think there's a lot to, you know, Dick and I teaching that class together and the fact that um, the women saw the two pieces coming together, not only having a man and and a, a woman and a female teaching the class, but also, you know, somebody engaged in the sport, in the field, and then the manager um, connected to that that management tool. So mm-hmm. it, it always was a really, and I, I enjoy that class immensely and I hope that it continues. Um, but yeah, we usually don't have a lot of women that sign up for it. <laughs> I love that um, perspective of, because I think especially in trapping for sure, but I think uh, by extension, even hunting and fishing, it's like the, the citizen science that takes place when somebody's that closely observant of um, the natural environment. And, and I love hearing about the collaborations between um, uh, hunting and fishing and trapping communi- communities and, and agency work or research work. Um, like I remember talking to a researcher up in Canada um, who was studying like cold effects on fish and the collaboration that she had with ice fishers and collab- as a part of that. And it's just, it, it that that partnership between the science and the the people living on the land is is so vital and often not talked about and so i love how that demonstration of the class um, brings those pieces together i can imagine that would be really cool yeah yeah and it, it's definitely been something throughout my career that um i've really gained a whole new appreciation for all of the people that participate in outdoor um, pursuits like that, because they really, I mean, there's people that spend a lot of time and a lot of effort and have a lot of knowledge around it. And it it's really important insight and perspective. We need to like take that all in and consider it. And yeah, so more open communication and the more we can kind of share those experiences, the better off we are. Trapping is one of the things that, oh, I want to do it. I don't have the time right now. Maybe Actually, I've thought about it being a really great activity to do with Charlie because it would be, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So TBD, (laughs) we'll see. (laughs) But uh, I was talking with an Artemis ambassador recently about trapping and she shared with me the National Trappers Association. This is actually happening as we speak right now, somewhere in Ohio, I believe. Um, But there's three days, it was Thursday, Friday, and Saturday from, you know, nine in the morning until two 30 at night demos by women trappers. Mm-hmm. So oh, wow. every day there's like, you know, six or seven demos going on taught by women. And I, I was like, man, if I knew this was, and you know, if I knew about this sooner, I would totally have gone to it. And she's like, me too. And I don't know. It's really, I love to see that they're, I don't know. It's, I sound like a broke record, but I love to see that they're out there doing this. And again, it's women in positions of competence in the outdoors and not that, you know, there's a lot of incompetent women, but th- these <laughs> words are coming out all wrong. It's inspiring to me. They would be, you know, role models for me. And I just, I don't know. I like that that exists, even if I'm not able to be there listening to the talks. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, I was just thinking, Ashley, uh, I feel like it was a conversation we had on a podcast not too long ago about um, like one of the, like, I'm going to butcher this, but bear with me. Like one of the 
benefits of trapping with kids is that, yes, it's just this really cool opportunity to be in the woods together um, and uh, get to know the land and, and have those conversations. But the downside is that you never know how long you're going to spend in the field depending <laughs> on how productive your traps are that day. I think that's an interesting, like, I mean, the same can be said for hunting, but, you know, are you out there for an hour or are you out there for five hours? That's a good point. Well, the easy part about that for me is I require the same amount of snacks that a toddler does. <laughs> so I think we'd be fine. That's awesome. That's what, that's what I always say. Fishing is about the snacks for me. I want to know how many snacks are in the boat. <laughs> All right, Jill, it sounds like you have had a lot of moments in the field. Uh, can you tell us about one of your favorite? No, man. Yeah, there's, there's a bunch. Um, but it really, I think seeing my, my son get into hunting has really um, been uh, super special as, as you picked up on. And I think um, the moment that comes to mind is we, uh, the first fall he was able to hunt, we went to a family uh, function and it was close to one of the wildlife management areas that I do some work on. And so just as a last minute thing, I was like, well, let's just throw our bird hunting stuff in the car and bring it with us and maybe go for a quick walk when we get there. And, um, we ended up getting to the family function and I asked my son and daughter if they wanted to come and, you know, there was some hesitation and then my son finally was like, yeah, no, I'll just come. So he came with us and we got down in there and it's a spot that I had hunted many times before and I let the dog go and immediately she like put up a, a woodcock. And so um, my my husband took my son off to the side and I stayed back and I, I was working with the dog and I totally got to watch this whole scene unfold as the dog flushed the woodcock again and it flew out in front of my son and my husband and like sat down in a little pocket of woods right in front of him and my son was able to get a shot off and he and he harvested his first woodcock and to be able to kind of stand back and watch that all unfold with the dog there and my husband there it was just really magical and one of the the, the memories I think I'll always take with me um, was that that all unfolding that day. Sounds lovely. And I love how that story reflects what you talked about earlier, hunting being about community for you. Yeah. Socializing yep. in, in the hunt and just that time in the field with your family. Yeah, that sounds like a Terry Redlin painting in motion like you'd see at Hogwarts. <laughs> I could really, it was very easy for me to visualize what you were talking about, Jill, because of the way you described it, you told that beautifully. Thank you. So there's two things that I thought about in the course of our conversation that I don't want to forget to bring up. One, how cool is it that your son is going to tell everybody for the rest of his life that he learned a turkey hunt from his mom? That mm -hmm. Somebody else said that to me and I, it hadn't dawned on me until after he shot his turkey. I was like, yeah, that is pretty cool, isn't it? <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah. Uh, another thing recently I came across, somebody showed me this ground blind that they bought and your experience with your son made me think of this. It's off of Amazon. I think it's relatively inexpensive as far as ground blinds go. And you can see out the whole thing. Like you can't see in, yeah. but when you're in it, you can see out the walls, not just the windows. It's totally in my, my list. Yeah, it's my Amazon yeah. list for sure. <laughs> I didn't know this existed and I have to have one. This is like, can you just imagine being in there? I mean, even if you were alone, but with your kid and seeing things and being able to like point things out to them, that would be so much more interesting than sitting in a box. It's, it's yeah. like an invisibility cloak. Yes, more Hogwarts. <laughs> okay, yes. Oh, man. That's, I love that. Thank you, Marcia, for that. You're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's transition to hits and misses. Uh, this is our weekly closer, and we ask what everyone has been aiming for and how it's gone. And Marsha and I have been recording a lot of podcasts lately, so she's been struggling. I don't know, Marsha, do you have a hit or a miss to share with I us do, today? You know, I got to bring us back to the beginning of the podcast where I talked about my brand new air conditioner that's on way. <laughs> and I think of it both a hit and a miss. Um, but yeah, I ordered an air conditioner last night and it, I, it, you know, it's in the mail, so it'll come in a few days. Um, the joy I feel about the, 
anticipation of coolness in my house uh, it, it is, is, is exciting. I think I, like I, in Montana in the past, right, and in Michigan growing up too, it was somewhat similar. Like there's like two weeks of weather that is pretty unbearable, but otherwise it, you know, if you can make it through those two weeks and the rest of the time is really quite lovely because it gets so cool here in the night. Um, and so I usually just power through those two weeks and uh, I love sleeping with the windows open and the fresh air and all of that. And it's great. But lately, it's been a lot hot a lot longer than two weeks and it's hot and then it's smoky. And, you know, it, there's just a point where you're like, I actually don't have to power through this. <laughs> like I can solve this and make life easier on myself and actually get a good night's sleep um, and not sweat buckets of sweat while I'm trying to work from home um so I finally uh purchased an air conditioner and I think it's a big success in in like me just you know prioritizing my needs damn it (laughs) (laughs) absolutely yep yep Jill do you have an air conditioner uh we have one, but it rarely goes in the window because there's really like maybe two to five days a year where we would need it. And I just can't justify putting it in the window right? at this point. So. And so that's where I was. And I think like now I'm just like, um, I just, it's, I'm, I'm absurd in so many different kinds of ways. <laughs> but like, um, like part of my compromise with myself is like, okay, we're like, I can handle up until 95 degrees. It's like after 95 that I get really uncomfortable. Um, so now it's like standards about when I will allow myself to use the air conditioner. <laughs> yep. Oh, this makes me kind of sad because I remember growing up in Minnesota, I slept with the windows open all the time. I love that so much. And living in the South, you, you cannot do it. You can't do it yeah. if, if you want to yeah. sleep. <laughs> so... What's your temperature but, limit, Ashley? Oh, I don't I mean, know. We've got humidity, so that's a whole other ballgame, too. We've got humidity. I, this is something I think about a lot because I think, you know, I miss the winter, but then I wonder, can I handle real winter anymore? It's been, it's been so long, and I also noticed that, you know, when I lived in Ghana, obviously no air conditioner there, rarely even a fan. I would have it for like, you know, four hours once every three or four days. Um, so I just sat in front of it then. Or what, what happened with that? That's like a whole nother thing to do with infrastructure and government and corruption. But basically, nobody knew when the power would come on or for how long it, it would stay on. Okay. Um, and that was like roughly the interval that I picked up on. Um, I forgot where I was going. Oh, when I was in Ghana, I mean, it was really hot. Obviously hot all the time. But I think because I never could get cool, I oh. adjusted to it to some extent. Um, and so now since I've moved back to the U S and living in the Southeast, I feel like I'm not as good at the hot because I know I can get in the cold. <laughs> if I need to. Right. That makes sense. Yeah. But anyway, I digress. Jill, what have you been aiming for lately? Uh, my son went away for his first overnight camp this week. So he has been gone for five nights and six days (laughs) and it's the first time he's been away that long and so my hit is the fact that I actually made it through the week without like calling and checking on him (laughs) (laughs) good job that's very yeah mom yeah what kind of camp is it it's actually a conservation camp uh that Vermont Fish and Wildlife does so he's getting his hunter safety again and bow hunter safety and learning fly fishing and doing all sorts of cool stuff this week so I want to go on that camp yeah totally that's awesome. Well, I would say my hit for today, um, I took my dog, my dog that I got from Ghana, Jasper, to the vet to get uh, a six-month heartworm shot. So that's a thing now. You can get him for six months or a year. And this dog doesn't eat anything. He has like this deep-seated fear of being poisoned, which is actually rational from the place where he comes. Um, mm. But it means that we cannot disguise treats or medicine like there's no way to get him to eat it. So to take the monthly stuff, I have to literally shove it down his throat with my hand and then hold his mouth closed and blow in his nose until he swallows it. Oh, buddy. 
<laughs> it's terrible. And, you know, 75% of the time he spits it back out when I, after I think he swallowed it. So, um, yeah, we went and got a shot today. So that means no pill shoving for six months, which is great. And uh, there's a miss along with that, which is that I realized at my during my time at the vet and them doing math, asking me questions about him, that he is eight and a half years old, which is too old. <laughs> I'm sure he's going to live until he's like 14 because he's insanely healthy. But, um, yeah, I don't know. I don't like to think about his mortality. Yeah. I do remember that with my dog, with Nico, who um, is no longer with us, like there was a huge leveling out of her personality around eight where um, she just like, you know, was over the uh, high energy peak and she just chilled out a lot around eight and nine. That well, my dog, he's basically a cat anyway, his whole life. So. <laughs> he's still doing good though I had, but, a, uh, I had a cat who was basically a dog one so I love to hear that there are dogs who are basically cats too oh, it's a nice happy medium I think it is yep. very good well Jill thank you so much for being here and talking with us and for being an ambassador this was, I really enjoyed this yeah it was great to talk to you Jill thank you yes thank both of you um, it was a lot of fun I'm glad I did it and actually, before we go, I do want to plug um, the job posting for my position is yes. up and out there and open. So um, if y'all want to be a part of Artemis um, and take on the program manager position, take a look. Um, yeah. Call me if you want to talk about it. <laughs> yeah. Marshall, I'll give you the lowdown. And it's posted, or I guess on Monday, it'll also be posted on our social media as well, right? Yeah. Well, every, by the time yeah. this airs, it will be, yeah. It'll be out there. Check out our... Uh, Insta profile link tree. It'll, it'll live there for a while. Thanks for joining us this week on the Artemis podcast. We hope you're having a great week. Until next time, be bold, stay curious, and get outside. Mm-hmm.